It is good to see you today. Um, God bless you. I need you to grab a Bible, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It's a short little passage we're going to study together, and uh, I'm kind of excited about it. I got to tell you ahead of time, uh, I know it's only like five verses, but we're doing it over two weeks because I couldn't help myself. Um, one of the things that I have had the privilege of doing over the years is uh, being able to visit lots and lots of churches. Um, I, don't, I don't know why. Whenever I'd go to a conference, we'd always stay over the following weekend, and we'd go and visit lots of churches in the, whatever area that was in. And so I've been all over the United States, been to most of the churches that you would know the names of, some that you wouldn't. And uh, one of the things that we would do, me and the guys I was with, you know, you learn something from every church. But one of the things that we were always, it was kind of like our, one of our little litmus tests was that we would go into the lobby of uh, several churches and we would, we would just find a location and each one of us would individually just stand there and see how long it took for anyone to notice, notice us. Um, some churches, it's like four seconds and it's a little weird, right? It's like you've been stalked since you came in the door. And other churches, it takes quite a, long, quite a long time for them to come up to you. I do remember I was speaking, in fact, at one of the churches. They had this interesting service set up where uh, they, did a, they did the worship service, and then they had a break for coffee and, and donuts, which, amen. And, but then they had the, the, the sermon time afterwards. And so I was standing in the lobby in the middle of the, of the time, and I was just standing there, and nobody at all was talking to me. I had a donut in my hand. Of course I did. And then I had used a drink, and I was just standing there. It lasted about, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And finally, after seriously, a long time. After about 10, 15 minutes, this guy comes up to me and says, are you new here? And I said, yes, I am. He said, me too. You know, like, <laughs> you looked like it. So we started talking. He's like, oh, my goodness, you're the guy who's going to be preaching. You need to tell all these people off. And I, I didn't, of course, because, but now I am in front of you. Um, I came to Harvest, in fact, a number of years ago. And the first time I ever came to Harvest was the Rolling Meadows campus. And I stood out in the hallways uh, with three other friends. We got here early because we didn't know what time the service started. And so the, the first service was still happening. And we came in, and we were kind of wandering around the lobby and uh, I, I think there was a shooting in the U.S. just prior to that, a, like a church shooting. And so there's like four or five like fully armed police officers around. And I was being followed by a police officer. No joke. So I started walking around to see how far he would follow me. And I went all the way around. And then I went back down this hallway before. And then I stopped. And then he came up to me, you know, his hand on his gun. Can I help you with something? <laughs> I said, dude, I'm just a pastor of another church. Can I see some identification? <laughs> no, you can't see any idea. It was awesome. It was a great first impression. Um, it was a great first impression. Um, you know, because you visit so many churches and you get a chance to see what different ones do, you start asking questions after a, lot, a while. Like, what, what makes a really great church? What kinds of things go through your mind when you think, this church is amazing? Like, what are the tests for you? Is it the music? Is it the preaching? Is it the parking? For, for many different people, it's many different things. And sometimes you, you think that uh, a church is really healthy because you show up one week, but then it comes, you come to realize it, it isn't or wasn't. 
fact, I had friends where I used to live who uh, told me a funny story about how they visited a church in our, in our area. Uh, they were doing the church shopping, and they just moved into the town. They were trying to find a place that their family could plug in. And so uh, they went to a church that's down the street from ours. And uh, they went into the building the first Sunday, and they like, loved it. They said, this is going to be great. This is going to be our church, right? So they showed up the next. It was about 700 people there. And they showed up the next Sunday, and there were like 100 people there. And they were like, what happened? Are, is this like a holiday? Did they go on a church camp or something like that? And uh, actually, one of the guys came up to me and said, well, actually, uh, our, our pastor got angry with the elders, and he planted a new church like just down the road there. On this particular Sunday, he just lifted up and went, and 600 people went with him, and 100 were left behind. And these people were like, we had no idea. The first Sunday we were there, they were so friendly, and never, you never had any idea. But then this, you find out that this church that looked so healthy actually, actually wasn't. So what makes a healthy church? What kind of characteristics do healthy churches have? And, and as a church here at Harvest, what kinds of things ought we aim for so that we are a healthy church? There's a lot of different people who've written lots of books about this subject. There's guys who wrote one called Natural Church Development, and then there's a whole group called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Well, I came up with ten marks, so take that, nine marks. Um, mine's got eleven. So what makes a great church is what I want to ask the question today. What makes a great church? Uh, I'm only going to get through four of them today. So you're going to have to hold on to your hats and glasses for the next uh, five or six next week. So here they are, the four marks of a healthy church that we're going to find in uh, Acts 2, 42 to 47, four of many. The first one, healthy churches love the Bible. Healthy churches love the Bible, um, Acts 2, 42. So you guys remember what happened just prior to this passage, right? I mean, Peter has preached this sermon to all of these people who gathered around when the tongues of fire came upon them and they started speaking in languages that they did not know. Peter notices that this is the moment that Joel predicted. And he says, this is the moment that the day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord has come upon you. So repent, because God is bringing his judgment. And the people respond by saying, well, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And 3,000 people were baptized in that day. Now, it's interesting that the next thing that happens in the book is there's this description of the early Christian community, which should lead you to believe rightly that Lone Star, Lone Ranger Christians aren't a thing. Once these people get saved, they get plopped into this body, this church, this gathering of people, and that gathering has certain marks, and then he, so Luke describes them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, one, to the fellowship, two, to the breaking of bread, three, and to the prayers, four. I'm not going to do that one today because I don't like prayer. 
Um, just kidding. This word, though, and they, and they devoted themselves, uh, it, it is a, this, in fact, all of the verbs in this entire passage are what we call imperfects. They, they kind of connote this, this continuing nature. This isn't just describing something that the church did on one particular occasion. It's describing what they did over and over again. That's why you get the, and they were devoting themselves. It's probably the better translation. They were just repeatedly devoting themselves over and over again to these four particular things. And the first of them is the apostles' teaching. Now, you, I don't know if you guys ever heard the phrase, uh, red-letter Christians. Uh, if you haven't, let me just explain to you what it is. There are some people in the church today who believe that, uh, you know, when you open your Bible to the Gospels and th- there's some letters there that are read because Jesus spoke them. They believe that those red letters are the truer and purer form of Christianity, that you can actually elevate the red letters above all the other black letters because that's, that's the Jesus letters. So they'd call themselves red letter Christians, and you can get in debates with them sometime, and they'll say, well, your argument is coming from one of the books Paul wrote, and that's kind of on a secondary level to the, to the Jesus words. One of my favorite things when I get in this conversation with them is they, they say, well, I, I believe in only Jesus' words. And I always say, there, there are no Jesus' words. And they say, what? And I say, all you have in the entire New Testament is apostles. That's it. All you have from, from Jesus, is the only, he only wrote one thing, guys. John chapter 8, he's kneeling down on the ground there's a woman caught in adultery, and he's drawing something in the ground. I have no idea what it, what it is. I've heard whole sermons about what he's drawing on the ground. We don't know, right? We don't know. It's probably directions to the nearest Wendy's. I don't know. I don't know. But that's all he wrote. The rest of the words of Jesus, you know, because they're quoted speech from apostles. And this is precisely how Jesus wants you to know him. Through the apostles' teaching. Listen, he didn't need to do it that way, right? God did not need to do it that way. He could have made it so that when you come to faith in Jesus, you would have this like secret red telephone. You could call him on the phone whenever you had a question. Hello, God? And he said, yeah, I'm here. He he could have done it. He written in the sky all the things he wants you to know. He could have given you a talking dog. He could do any of these things, but Jesus didn't choose to do those things. Jesus chose to use his disciples, these apostles, and say, I'm going to lead you guys into all truth, and you're going to go forward, and you're going to, the Spirit is going to bring to you what I want you to say, and you're going to write it down. And guys, we have the apostles' teaching today in a book, which is cool, right? That you have the teaching of the apostles commissioned by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, in a book that you can carry around with you. And it collects dust on your shelf, the very words of God. Oh, I wish God would talk to me more. It's got dust on your shelf. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That Healthy churches devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And, and it shows, and I'll give you a couple ways that it shows in, in a healthy local church. One of those ways is 
in a healthy local church devoted to the apostles' teaching, there's more excitement for Scripture than there is for extra-biblical revelation. There's more excitement for Scripture than there is for extra-biblical revelation. When I was living in New Zealand, one of the, I, I had interactions with people from all over the, the spectrum of Christianity. It was, it was a great experience. This one lady would come every Monday to a meeting that I was in, and she would, she would recount to me how, amaz- how God is moving in her church. And I would say, oh, tell me about it. What happened? And she would start describing for me all the prophecies that were, that were given the day before. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating. She'd retell them. And I said, so, like, when you guys get together in your church, do you guys open... Like, you, do you study the Bible at all? And, she, and her response is, well, we don't need to because God is so alive and active right now giving us words in the present moment. And I remember telling her, you should be careful of that church. Listen, it's not because I don't believe in the present use of prophecy or not. We can debate that later if you want. It's that I believe that Jesus chose to communicate with you and me through the apostles' teaching. And if the Spirit does anything in the present day, he takes his word and he applies it to your situation here and now. When you hear the Spirit, what you're hearing is the Spirit prompting you with what he's already, what he's already said. People will say, oh, I'm a word guy. Or you're a word guy, Jeff, and I'm a spirit guy. Hey, man, the Spirit is a word guy. Don't separate those. The Bible itself doesn't separate them. In fact, through the scriptures, you get these really interesting phrases, guys. So and this is just in Acts chapter 1. I just picked this one out because it was an Acts, and, and we probably just ran by it when we studied it just a few weeks ago. Brothers, the scripture, this is Peter speaking. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. How? By the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who rested Jesus. Well, wait a minute. So the thing that he's citing David as saying is actually the Holy Spirit. Yes, and it's also David. Yes, that's right. The Holy Spirit speaks through the mouth of the apostles. Second Peter one twenty one. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but. How did you get your Bible? Well, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what you have in your hands when you hold your Bible is a Holy Spirit book. It's his very word. Yeah, but it's also the human words. Yes, through the human personality, yes. But God's very words, the Holy Spirit's very words. And so if you want to hear what the Holy Spirit says, you should focus on what the scriptures say because that's what he says. Healthy churches focus more on scripture, have a greater excitement for scripture than they do extra biblical Revelation. Second thing, a healthy church um, commits itself to Scripture as the primary means of spiritual growth. A healthy church commits itself to Scripture as the primary means of spiritual 
of spiritual growth. Let me just show you a, a, one more verse here. It says, I'll, I'll screw this 2 Timothy chapter 3. So last book that Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, he's about to die. 2 Timothy 4 kind of are his dying words. He says in chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. Paul made up a word there, just so you know. The Greek word is theopneustos. You can't find it anywhere else because he made it up. You ever, I, I talk about healthifying stuff. That's a made up word. There is no such thing as healthifying, right? Or nearly most things that Joe Biden said. Just kidding. That's a joke, right? He makes up words though, right? I mean, people make up words all the time. Trump did it too. They all make up words. Breathed out by God is theopneustos. Breathed out by God. The Spirit is breathing through the Apostle. All Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that, guys, notice what it's used for, the man or woman of God may be complete. This word means mature. They may be mature, equipped for every good Work. Now, if you ask me right now, define for me, Jeff, a, a healthy Christian. I think a healthy Christian is someone who is mature. And by mature, I mean they're equipped for every good work. Right, that's what Paul says. So how do you get someone who is complete or mature, equipped for every good work? Um... He tells you. Scripture. You give, them, you give them the Bible. If you want to see people grow in Christ, you connect them to the Spirit's inspired word. Not in some fuzzy uh, water skiing, just touching the surface way, but like a scuba diving way. Like that you get into it and you try to understand what it means in its context and you study it and you get the joy of discovery as you see all that's there. You want to make people mature. You give them the Bible. My, our women's ministry, my former church, when I first came there, it was in disarray. And I didn't really know. So the first thing I started praying for was, Lord, would you send a godly woman who loves your Bible to me? And uh, she, God... with. I didn't know it, but she was already there. And so I asked Crystal to start taking up some of the women's ministry. She started getting involved in it. And then she caught a vision for the scriptures as the key way that you can equip people for, for life and faith. And so she took all the women did. They did Bible studies and Bible studies and Bible studies. We had people from our community who didn't know Jesus. And they were coming to the Bible studies. And the women were going home to do some homework. They come back for the Bible study. And... It seems so old-fashioned, and yet there was like 2,000 women coming to Bible studies. I, I got a phone call from a guy in our church, and he said, um, could you start doing this for men? Because I'm sick and tired of being wrong in the arguments with my wife. <laughs> and so we started men's stuff that way. Our whole church started to revolve around the scriptures. Do you know what Harvest ought to do? We ought to live up to our name. We are Harvest Bible Chapel. On purpose, we are Harvest Bible Chapel. So if you come to Harvest now or in the future, you are going to get the Bible. 
You're going to get it from the pulpit. You're going to get it in youth groups. You're going to get it in young adult groups. You're going to get it in small groups. And if I'm walking next to you on the street, I might try to get it in there too. Bible, Bible, Bible. Healthy churches love the Bible. They devoted themselves to these apostles, the apostles' teaching. Second, healthy churches really share. Healthy churches really share. Uh, let me go back up here and show you that this passage is not hard to follow. We come back to it, and, and they devoted themselves. We, we talked about the, the apostles' teaching, but here's the other one, that the fellowship. What does that word mean? They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Well, the, the word is uh, koinonia. Uh, some of you have been in church a long time, and you're like, yeah, that's what we used to call my community group, a, a koinonia group, or I went to a church called koinonia. Right. The word koinonia in Greek, it means to share, but guys, don't, don't hear it like, don't hear it the way that we might use it. Like, the word is used, to, it, we use the word tr uh, fellowship to translate it, but when he, I say fellowship to you, what do you guys think about, right? Like the, fe the fellowship hour after church. When I was a kid, we used to have fellowship hour at my main lunch. We used to go in the back, and they always had that watered-down drink. It's not the McDonald's uh, orange drink from my childhood. It's like they took that and added like a gallon or two of water, and they made it horrible. You go to the back, you get your drink, and think this is nowhere near as good as McDonald's. And then you'd have your stale cookie. That was fellowship hour, and people stood around and talked to each other, and most of the older men had coffee breath. That was it. Some, some churches do the fellowship time in the middle of the service. Uh, for those of you who are introverts, this is the most hated time in the history of hated times at church. It's when they have you stand up, turn to your friend next to you who you don't know and just blew their nose in their hand and shake their hand, right? Hello, 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 fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. Okay, yeah, I guess it is kind of a community time where we get to know each other, but it, in the scriptures, koinonia means something much deeper than that. Fe fellowship means a, a deep sharing of what? Of everything. A deep sharing of your time. A deep sharing of your energy. And a deep sharing of your stuff. And it's that last one. It's that last one that Luke in particular really, really likes to focus on. Koinonia is deep sharing of your stuff. And by stuff, he's like, yeah, your money. So you find in the scriptures lots of evidence for this. So I'll start just with Hebrews. I'll show you the word itself, koinonia. It shows up in these passages. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Don't neglect to do good and to koinonia. What does it mean? I don't know. Give it to your friend. When they ask for it, be willing to offer. The Good Samaritan was a, a koinonia kind of guy. He, he shared what he had, uh, Romans 15. So one of the real interesting things that's happening in the New Testament is that Paul is going around to several of the churches, and the reason he's visiting them is because he wants them to give money. And the money he's going to get, he's going to take in a big basket and he's going to hand it to the church in Jerusalem, the first church, the one that we're reading about in Acts right now. 
He's going to hand it to that church in Jerusalem from all the Gentile churches as a sign that they love you. There's a big famine in Jerusalem. And so Paul's going around the whole world saying, hey, man, if you guys could give some money to this collection that I'm going to take to Jerusalem, it's going to show them that you have koinonia with them. That you're, you're in it with them in like the deepest possible way, which is our money, which we hold really tight. So in, in Romans, he kind of makes reference to this. He says, at present, however, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia, churches in Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some, there it is, some koinonia. For the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. Some sharing and yeah, what kind of sharing? B money. Money sharing. In fact, in the passage that we're, that we're looking at here, if you go forward just a couple verses, Luke describes the early Christian community by saying, and all who believed were together and they had all things in common. That doesn't mean they, become, they, they became socialists. It means that they had koinonia. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. As any had need. Oh, this guy over here, he's got particular need and I know his need. He doesn't have food to eat or he doesn't have whatever. And so I'm going to go and sell my property. I'm going to bring the money. I'm going to hand it to the apostles. That happens in a little bit when Barnabas shows up and he does that very thing. So here's, here's my point here. To have fellowship with one another often means sharing what you have with them. This kind of sharing is a huge sign that the gospel has done its work in your heart. Like if you want a window through which you can see whether somebody's genuinely saved or not, Luke and a lot of the New Testament is saying, here's one, how they look at their money toward their brothers and sisters. There's an awful lot about their spiritual conditions. So Luke does some really interesting things in his gospel. He, he starts, you know, gospel and acts, and then he, he compares some stuff. So here's a story. Very famous one. He told them a parable. So I'll, actually, the background to this is there's this guy who comes up, and he's really upset because his, his father has died and he's the second son and his brother won't share the inheritance with him, right? Stupid older brother, right? That's the way it worked. Older brother got all of the, all the money. You can imagine that. You know, you're going sitting in the will and the will says, actually, the rules are it all goes to older brother. And you're like, okay, fine, but he's gonna have to share. And your older brother's like, no, I'm not. So you're going to be angry. You might go to a judge somewhere. But if Jesus is walking the streets at that time, you're going to like go around the judge and be like, I'm just going to go to God on this one. So this guy approaches Jesus and says, hey, I need you to tell my brother to, to, to share the money with him, share the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, well, who made me a judge between the two of you? Be careful. Be careful how money captures your heart. And then he tells a story. He told them a parable saying, uh, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, right? His stocks soared. He owned a lot of Amazon. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? 
for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I just want to show you guys things uh, really quickly. Have you noticed how many eyes he's got in this one? Uh, For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will will do this. Uh, He's talking to himself. I will tear down uh, my my barns. I build it. Store all my grain. He's a little self-obsessed, yes? Like he's even having a conversation with himself. Hey, self, what do you think? I think you're great, self. So his plan is, I'm not going to give any of it away. In the ancient world, if you had a whole bunch of extra grain, you were supposed to leave it in the fields and so the gleaners could come. The poor people could come and they could take it. And he's like, stupid gleaners, I'm taking it. I'm building bigger barns. And I will say to my soul, do you love this? Soul, he addresses himself. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, it's the first time anyone else enters the picture for this guy. Oh, there's other people in the universe. God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have Prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and isn't rich toward God. How do you rich toward God? How do you how do you get rich toward God? What's the guy's problem? Well, the guy's problem is he likes to hoard things and not share them. Luke later tells you about a guy who's rich toward God. I mentioned him a minute ago. Luke 4, there wasn't a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, he's the guy who eventually starts traveling around with Paul, right? Which means son of encouragement. He's a Levite, he's a priest, a native of Cyprus, and he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Can you imagine that? One of you guys owns a holiday home, and you show up at church one day, and you notice that your friend doesn't have what you, what, what you think they ought to. So you go out, you sell your holiday home, you bring it forward, and you hand it to the pastors of the church, and they distribute it as any had need. That's what it looks like, I think, to be rich toward God, yep. And what's the difference? Well, one of them loves koinonia and the other one does not. If you want to know something really, really important about your spiritual condition, take a litmus test for koinonia. Put the little koinonia thermometer inside of you and say, what am I willing to do to share with my brothers and sisters? We had some really, um, some really cool friends in, in New Zealand. One day, one day we, I don't even know who did this, but my wife came home, and she, and she walked through the door. She had all stuff in her arms, you know, and she, had, she came home, she sat down, she, all this stuff was there, and we were sitting there after church for about two hours or whatever. I got back up, and I walked into the garage where she had come in hours earlier, and I looked on the ground, and there was an envelope, and on the front of it, 
says, we love you, have a good trip. And I picked it up, and inside was $4,000. We had been praying that the Lord would give us enough money so that we were able to go home. We didn't share that with almost anybody except for a few people who then ended up saying, huh, I can do that. And they slipped it into my wife's pocket. She took her coat off in the garage and it dropped on the ground. And by God's grace, I picked it up. Koinonia. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, all right? So healthy churches then are for everyone. So when it says the breaking of bread, here's what it means. To the breaking of bread. Well, that obviously is probably a reference to communion, right? When we, when we take communion. But in the early church, communion was a little bit different than what you and I you and I do. Um, the early church was a place where uh, they would get together for, for a meal, like an actual meal, and they would take communion as, as part of it, right? So they'd gather together, they'd spend some time together, some apostles would give some teaching or whatever, and then they'd tear an entire, an, an entire meal together. That meal signified a kind of relationship between them. If you wanted to have, be friends with somebody in the first century, you would have a meal with them. All right, but now you got to be careful who you invite over for your meals. You know that because in an honor shame culture like that, if you invite, you know, Roger over to your house, just kidding, you know, people might not, might look down on you. Or if you invite, you know, Andy Rozier over to your house, they might think, oh, you're a pretty important person. So you want to focus on the Andes of the world. You always want to meet together with people in your social station or people just above, so that you can get like, you know awesomeness by association. But you do not invite the nobodies around. And now you know why it is that when Jesus is having meals with tax collectors and prostitutes, people are like, there's no way this guy is, there's no way this guy is God. He mixes with all the wrong people. So having a meal with people is a way to say, we're friends, we're, we're equals. And so the Christian meal was a different thing than the rest of the society because anybody could go. It didn't matter who you were, you could come and be a part of the Christian community. It didn't matter if you had leprosy or you were a prostitute, if you were a tax collector, if you were a sinner. It didn't matter. The richest and the poorest all came together in the church and none of those divisions mattered anymore. The breaking of bread was a community meal emphasizing the inclusivity of the gospel. Everybody was welcome. And so when it says that you committed themselves to the breaking of bread, they're saying they committed themselves to the inclusivity of everybody who was part of the community. Now, the church got this wrong later. This is an interesting passage. I'll read it to you in, in 1 Corinthians 11. What's going on here is that they're getting together in the house of a wealthy person because they're the only ones who have big houses. But the rich people get to get there early, right? They don't have to work. And they get there, and it's, you know, if you're sitting around and there's some wine out and the food's waiting for you and you're hungry, you might have a sip of wine and get some 
food to eat and have another sip of wine and get some food to eat. And eventually you're eating all the food and you're drinking all the wine. And then when 5 o'clock rolls around and everybody's off work and they show up at the, at the house, the poorer people, the people who have to work or the ones who just couldn't make it in time, they have to now sit on the outside of the community and they don't get all the best food. And this is the way their breaking of bread was happening, happening in Corinth. And here's what Paul writes. He says, but in the following instructions, I don't commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, or do you despise, listen, this is what they're doing. They're despising the church of God and you're humiliating those who have nothing. You're emphasizing that you're rich and they're poor and it's too bad they have to work, but if they were like you, they could show up early and have all the good stuff. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I won't. For, for, for I, and this is the passage we always read during communion, right? For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for y'all. Do this in remembrance of me. It's for y'all, guys. Not just for you. It's for y'all. In the same way, he also took a cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does it mean to eat it in an unworthy manner? Oh, um, basically to show that you are more important and better than anyone else. That when you gather together as a community of faith, if you are, are barring anyone from being a part of it who is uh, not like you, might have a little bit of different, different viewpoint than you, maybe have a tattoo, um, if you are are treating them like they have to sit in the back and wait for it until most of it is gone and you get the better seats. If you are in any way dividing yourselves up, you are eating judgment upon yourselves, says, says Paul. So listen, here's the crazy thing. When you take communion, I know that we like to talk about how, well, this communion meal, I want you to check your heart and see whether you're right between you and God. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But you do know that communion was actually the breaking of bread in the community. That it's actually, it's a family meal. And that when you take communion, the thing you're supposed to check in yourself is do I have anything against somebody else? Is there a division that I'm creating in the body? Because if you are, some of these guys had fallen asleep. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, not themselves, the body eats and drinks 
judgment on himself. So the big point here is the focus of communion is certainly about my relationship with God, but equally about my relationship with you. When we break bread together, there should be no societal divisions between us. We're all, we're all one in Christ. Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Okay, so at the great risk of just, I'm going to end this little section. We're going to the last one. At the great risk of getting tons of emails from you, can I just say this contemporary thing? And I'll step over here because this is just Jeff talking. Here's an application. I, I know we have massive disagreements about COVID. I know we do. Everybody, some people think masks are great. Some people think masks are not great. That's, that's, that's fantastic. When we're part of the community and body of Christ, we honor both. We don't pass judgment on people because of that. But one of the things we absolutely do not do is bar people from entrance into our church because they are deemed clean by the wider society or unclean by the wider society. And I know that vaccine mandates are a really popular thing, and they can be used outside the church. But when we gather together, we are not like that. We don't create divisions. We don't create divisions. This is a challenge, in happening, challenge happening in lots of countries in the world right now, and it might happen here. But before we even get there, you and I need to commit ourselves to understanding that the breaking of bread that they did in the early church was a sign of their unity together. It was a sign that it didn't matter who you were, it didn't matter whether or not you had a really bad background or you had a leprosy or whatever, you can come here and be one of us. Send all those emails to uh, R. Roger. Oh, <laughs> last one, okay? Last one. So the rest of this passage, <laughs> I spent most of the time on like one verse. <laughs> so here's the rest of the passage. Okay, so all, all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and and. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And here's the verse I want to focus on as we end. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who... We're being saved. See, the last thing that I want to point out here is that healthy churches know it's all from God. Now, you might have just you might just pass that that verse. Oh, yeah, that sounds really great. But who are, who are the subjects and who are the objects? Who is the one who's adding to the church? The Lord is. Who are the ones being added to? That's a passive. Well, the church. Who's doing the saving? Probably God, who's being saved. The ones being added to the church. God acts, we receive. God does. We get. There was a pastor who I knew when I was really young. He was a professor at my, at my seminary. His name was Howard Hendricks. And he used to tell jokes about after the sermon, 
uh, the pastor will go out into the hallway and he will shake everyone's hand. He called this, uh, the, he called this the glorification of the worm ceremony. Because his point was, look, when you go out into the hallway and you're the pastor and they come along and they say, oh, good job, pastor. That was a really nice pastor. That was a really nice pastor. They, they are misguided in their praise. It's not the pastor who did really anything. It was, it was the Lord who does it. That's, that's what it happens. It's, to treat the pastor like they're the ones who are doing all this stuff is basically like glorifying a paintbrush when you see a beautiful picture. Oh, what a beautiful paintbrush. This is a great paintbrush. Let me get this paintbrush. Get a picture with the paintbrush. What? No, it's the painter. The, paint, the paintbrush is just a, just a tool. I'll be honest with you guys. Ever since I had come to, to the United, back to the United States for ministry, I got to tell you, the whole celebrity pastor thing is something I, I don't get. I don't understand it. Um, I hope I never do. I was asked to sign a Bible. I said, no, um, you can get the author to sign it when you see him. Um, now, listen, I get, the, I get the intent, right? There's a kindness, and we appreciate your ministry, and all that kind of stuff. But you, you do see that the glory is totally misplaced, right? You do see that. Uh, uh, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed as the Lord. See, the Lord assigned to those guys. Like I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He can raise up stones to preach for him. And you know, God doesn't take it very lightly when we steal the spotlight or presume we're the ones who control our worlds. You know that, right? So let me finish with this, this, is, this story. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is the story about Nebuchadnezzar. So he's, he's gone a little bit... Uh, He's gone a little bit arrogant. He decides one day he's going to walk out on the edge of his property and, you know, on, at, the, at the ledge of his kingdom. And he's looked around at everything and he says, oh, look at all the stuff I've got. Look how great I am. I am Nebuchadnezzar the mighty. And God doesn't, he doesn't even finish the sentence. And the Lord's like, okay, I've had enough of this. And he grabs the guy and he says, all right, just to teach you who's really in charge of all this stuff and who really deserves the glory, I'm gonna put you out the pasture for a little bit, literally. So this guy goes out and he's set into this pasture, right? And I always like to picture, he's Gollum out there. Hey, the fat one knows, the fat one, you know? He's got big old long fingernails. Hey. And then finally, after a long time, The Lord gives this sense back to him. He makes these grand statements about who God is, and at the end he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and I extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble So listen, um, it feels like a humbling wind has blown through the American church in recent days. Pastors have become celebrities and have been put out to pasture because they have assumed credit for what is the Lord's work. 
So let you and I agree on something right now. That wherever we go as a church and whatever good things the Lord does among us, this is his work. This is God's church. And there is a verse that sums it up perfectly. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your goodness and I'm thankful that you are the king who is exalted over all. Forgive us in the many ways that we have stood in the gap and tried to grab a little bit of that limelight that is only to you. Forgive us for the way that we sometimes sin against the body, not thinking about those brothers and sisters around us. Give us hearts for koinonia and sharing what we have, Father. Release our hands from what things that we just cling so tightly to. And ultimately, Lord, would you help us to love your word as we move forward as a church. Would you healthify us? In Jesus' name.